Welcome. I'm Jessica Tejan, and this is the Evolving to Exceptional podcast, where we talk about reaching peak performance in our workplaces, homes, and communities so that we can live our best life possible, an exceptional life. Welcome back to this week's episode of Evolving to Exceptional. This week, we have a learning and talent development manager, Caleb Sheet, with us here today. He's from Paulo Heat Treating, Brazing, and Metal Finishing, which is a fantastic organization that's just doing amazing work based on our prior conversations with people and performance and development and leadership development in, in particular. And Caleb has a really interesting backstory as to how he got into learning and development, learning and talent development to begin with. So Caleb, I'm going to give you a chance to give us your kind of unique segue into this space. And then tell us a little bit about why it is you do what you do and what it is that that makes you so passionate about it. Yeah. Thank you, Jessica, for that introduction and the opportunity here to share uh, about my background, my story. Yeah, definitely not your standard approach. Uh, I started out and I was looking for some way to make money because I was getting out of high school and I wanted to make money. That's what it was about for me. So I went into the manufacturing space wasn't long in that space and realized that I could make more money in the construction and carpentry space. So I made the move and got into that. And so for several years, I was a residential carpenter. I became a journeyman carpenter and I was happily enjoying that until we had this wonderful thing happen in 2008. And the whole world of building houses started to become incredibly constricted. And so because of that, I actually said, I've got to make a move, get back into manufacturing. I have some leadership. I have some capacity. I can contribute. I can do things. And so I jumped back in and re-found what I enjoyed there, which was bringing about quality, bringing about problem solving, energizing people around those issues. And after a few years, really got my feet back in the door and in 2011 started making some moves in 2013 and i had an encounter with a very senior leader she was well above my rank and file if you will and she encouraged me to apply for a position in the leadership development role and i declined her invitation she reached back out she pushed me she said you have what it takes you need to put your put yourself out there, just encouraging me. Her name was Jessica. And so I finally reached back out and said, Hey, I know I don't have the background and I don't check all the boxes in the job description. Looking back over a decade now, who does? But the reality is I went ahead and took her push as the impetus to get me going. And so I I put my name in the hat, feeling the immense amounts of not worthy, not ready, imposter syndrome, interviewed, got the position, and it has been a whirlwind over the last decade, a little longer now, working and moving through these spaces of learning and development, leadership development, being a talent manager now, where I'm at and able to aid our organization in a pretty broad way both from our learning and development side, but also from our talent acquisition, 
helping the leaders from our frontline supervisors up really get a hold of the way they tangibly impact the lives of the people who report to them and interact with them. And it's what excites me about leadership is that it allows a regular individual. You don't have to have some kind of special background or some incredible story. We all have great stories. We all have something to offer. And when you can move yourself into that position to actually maximize your influence in a way that brings out the best of the people around you, the team you're working with and leading, it starts to have a ripple effect. And so one of the things I say in my role is I tell our leaders to remember they should always look for bigger and bigger rocks. And those rocks are an opportunity to throw into our culture, see it as a pond. And when you throw in that rock, it creates a ripple. And the more you can do, the more impact you can have, the greater your influence becomes, the more those ripples start to reach outward and travel throughout their organization. And having a privileged seat of getting to watch young leaders, new leaders, leaders who have to relearn things because they've been in roles for decades has just been very exciting. So I, I love the last thing that you said, and I want to capitalize on that with, with a follow-up question around leaders who've been in roles for decades and they're having to relearn. And I think sometimes, in my experience, leaders get overly confident. They've done it for a long enough time that they feel like they're good. They know what they need to know. They've been doing it. And what, in your experience, have you seen be some of those new skill sets or those new capabilities that leaders maybe didn't develop who've been in roles for a long time and really still need to bring development or grow themselves in order to be able to demonstrate those capabilities? Probably the glaring example that I see most common is transitioning away from command and control. And these are leaders who took position of manager supervisor in the 80s. And in the 80s, that was still very prevalent. As we know, things have changed. And so understanding that it's not a challenge to their competency, but it's an opportunity for them to actually be effective, more effective with their current teams has really led to them growing in the conversational space in a place in which they can show empathy they can lean on their experience, taking them back to a place where they can reset with a rookie mindset, though they have all of the experience. Those have been the things that have been a lot of fun. Having a conversation just last month with one of those leaders, 34 years, he's been in his role being very effective. And yet he's realizing one of the things he said to me was, I don't know how to talk to our team anymore because I'm not used to having to explain myself. And mm. if you can imagine in an environment where a heat treat shop, it's not, it's not a controlled environment. It's not where everything's squeaky clean. You're not coming in there wearing your best clothes. It's a tough environment. And our team is putting in hard work to produce the outcomes our customers need. And his desire was to show them that he was for his team, but he was struggling to communicate, struggling to get them to recognize that he really did care. And he felt like he just came off too harsh. He was just too 
direct. That was how he, in his words, grew up into his role. And through a series of conversations, a couple of role-playing interactions, we realized that he actually is fantastic at those conversations when he's willing to recognize that his leadership hat is bigger than just the boss. And so that was a fantastic win very recently that we had. And it was exciting because as he began to share, he realized that there was so much more care, something that he could anchor to in his own person was looking at some of these young 18, 19, 20 year olds that are just walking in the door that he was seeing as frustrating. They were challenging. He began to question whether he could communicate with them, as I mentioned. But in one of our scenario workshops, if you will, where he and I were going back and forth, I asked him to speak with me just like he was trying to help his oldest grandchild be successful with some of their college work. And he turned into this mentor coach that was just a completely different expression And so we translated that over into his work environment. As we did that, he began to realize it was all there. He had all of those skills. He had all of the necessary mechanisms. He just had not considered that applied because he saw himself in that 1986, this is who I was supposed to be and it's who I've been and I've been successful. And in reality, all of that success is still very much there. It's an anchor of credibility that he has. I love seeing that happen. I, I love that example. And it highlights to me a little bit around what I see a lot in leaders who know what they need to do. They actually know how to do it. And they maybe even want to do it. But there's something that's blocking them that's getting in their way. And that example highlights it perfectly that typically it is something that some some sort of pathway, neuro pathway that they've developed, way of being, way of operating in response to their life experience, right? As right. we live our lives, we develop these ways of operating, these ways of living and experiencing and interacting in the world. And we develop them because of the world that we're in, the environment that we're in. And so he developed a certain set of skill sets because of the environment that he led in, which is absolutely appropriate. And and then, but then when we need to change them, we don't always see why it's blocked or what's blocking it. And so when you can work with somebody to identify how to bring that perspective, how to rewire that neural pathway, how to approach it from a, a different mindset, then you can cultivate cultivate those changes. And one of the ways I like to think about it from an analogy standpoint is it's oftentimes we think that we're broken or there's something wrong with us. And leaders are like, there's nothing wrong. I'm good. They don't want to think that there's something that needs to be fixed. And so I like to say, instead of thinking of yourself as broken, maybe you're looking into a broken mirror. Maybe the mirror is actually the thing that's broken and you're perfect. You have developed the neural pathways that you needed to develop for the environment and experiences that you've had. And the environment is changing, which means that we have to change as well. And so it's not that we're broken. It's just that we have to grow and evolve. It's just that we have to adjust our strategies, our ways of operating in response to new environmental conditions, new environmental experiences. And so what's nice about that is then it's not like there's anything wrong. The leader didn't do something wrong for 20, 20, 25 years, right? What they did served them well. And maybe a new strategy is going to serve them better now, which I think can be really powerful. 
Yeah, no, I knew I would learn something in this conversation and that analogy is fantastic. So I'm borrowing that. The idea of getting a different mirror, that's just fantastic. So thank you for sharing such a good analogy right out of the gate here. So Yeah, and it's helpful because, and it works with, with employees too, in that we aren't broken, right? There's nothing wrong with you. I'm not trying to fix you when I'm developing and growing you. What I'm trying to do is work with you to create new ways of operating that might serve you better. Exactly. That might help you perform better. That might help you live better. And when we do that, we create create better results. We create better outcomes for everybody. And I think your leader example was bang on there as, as, as an example of a situation where somebody was able to accomplish that. And now he wins and the people that he's mentoring get a tremendously effective mentor who has all of this experience and background. And so everybody ends up better off. Oh, absolutely. And it's one of the things is, as most would recognize, we want to see stuff that's tangible. We want to have an ROI. We want to measure it. We want to put a score around it. And in the space that I operate, that in retention, that in our engagement scores. And so when you look at that leader's particular environment, just as he's began to express that, those measures have gone up just significantly. And in doing so, it also, the other thing I love about it is when you see somebody in a senior position, recognize that they have a new capacity to exercise that they didn't know they had, it inspires everyone around them in their organization. And so it, tr it tends to lead to a kind of giving permission, which I think is interesting when you work with leaders who they've been asked to take ownership of their role ownership of that uh, department, whatever it might be. And yet they, they are hesitant. They're a little bit reserved because they're not sure. And then they see their leader step forward in a new way and they're ready to go. And that's exactly what's happening in that space is it's just getting very exciting to watch as they're learning. And that, that ripple effect has continued and it's going to continue to be positive. I'm confident. So, and you mentioned the ripple effect and the ripple effect can either be positive or negative, right? So we're, you're highlighting the positive effect of engagement scores going up and the impact of those efforts. And I think it's equally, if not maybe even more impactful or important to pay attention to the ripple effect of leaders and managers who are not developing and growing, who are not receiving coaching, training, and development, that the effects of even just being good rather than great. And the difference in performance of those teams can be pretty significant when you look at the metrics that come out of the teams that have the highest engagement versus the teams that are at average engagement. And so you've got to almost ask the question of like, why wouldn't you invest in leader and manager development? Why wouldn't every single leader and manager be continuously working on their personal and development of capabilities, their personal development of their own sense of self-awareness, right? Oh, absolutely. For me, the beauty is in the fact that there's abundant evidence to prove that. So when an ask is made, it costs money. There's an investment. There's often not hard numbers. Leadership development is one of those squishy things that's hard to define sometimes. But when we pull that scope back a little bit and we get a little more precise in what we're actually doing across the organization in a larger scale way, 
it's exactly what you're saying. And, and I get the benefit of seeing division to division comparison. And so looking across the multiple spaces, I'm able to say, hey, here is a, an individual in a place in which they've said yes. And here is an immediately tangible result. So let's look at an ROI on retention versus attrition cost. And when we start to put those numbers, which are very tangible in action, we start to see cause and a reason to invest. Now let's look at this division. They've chosen to avoid or resist or push back on these opportunities. And now let's look at their cost and look at where they are. And it translates throughout the organization. So it's not just our leaders. It becomes those that are direct reports on down to department leadership to now we have hourly team members who are consistently having to be retrained, replaced, replenishing staff from the ground up, which ultimately exhausts the leaders because we cannot be as effective as we could be. And really that hinges on the thing that's hard to get a hold of, which is what's the ROI of leadership development? We just saw it. One of those very obvious ways is when we start to see retention go up, when we start to see engagement go up. When I have 60% of a division or more telling me in an internal survey, hey, I would recommend to my friends and family, I want them to come work here. Every time there's an opening, we have a large number of referrals from our own team members versus a division where we get none. It, it does begin to paint that picture in such a way that the investment cost is worth it. And so then you move into the, the other side of the conversation, those leaders that are resistant, you've still got to work with them. You've still got to help them understand one of those ways that they push back is I've found they're, they're afraid of being challenged. And so when you reach into their division and how they do the work. And when I walk onto a shop floor, step into an environment, I always show up as a consultant. So my job is to help you be successful. I want to see this division become profitable. Ultimately, that's what we are about. Businesses exist to make money, but how we make that money matters. And so if we can make that money with a team that's engaged, that feels confident and safe in the work that they're doing, that understands the contribution to the society around them in a way that is meaningful and matters personally, you will actually drive your profitability much faster and in a much more expansive way than by simply the mechanisms of command and control. I would rather get contribution than compliance from team members, regardless of what their role title is. Yeah. And I think you highlight there the investment in leadership development. And in a lot of cases, really, we invest in leadership development and call it leadership development simply because we don't or there's a perception that we don't have the money to invest in everybody in the same right. way. But ultimately, those skill sets that we talk about are truly skill sets 
virtually everyone needs. And in most cases, it kind of centers around last night, I was reading around, again, the adult stages of development, the stages that we go through as adults, we used to think that we were fully developed, our brains were fully formed by the time we were about 2022. And now we know that's not true. And that as adults, we go through these other stages of development. But many people don't. Many people stop at a lower stage because they're not challenged with the self-awareness concept that you talked about, the willingness to admit, to be challenged and to admit that there's more growth possible, that there's more opportunities to, to gain perspective on ourselves and on others and on how to manage and grow people. And so I think often we end up thinking, oh, if I, I only need to invest in my leaders, when really, if we thought of everyone as leaders, we'd probably get tenfold the return. But at a minimum, investment in leaders, we know definitively the statistics and the, the research is just tremendous on the fact that, and, and you mentioned it in your own teams, you can see that those with the higher engagement have the higher output, that they have the more significant results, the more significant performance, and that the results are there. But many organizations still struggle with it in general. I'm curious, your organization clearly is a, a fo- on the forefront of caring about people and investing in development and, and training. Just having a person like in a role like yourself of a learning and development manager or trainer in the organization. What have been some of the challenges despite that, despite all of the great things your organization's doing? What have you seen be some of the challenges you've experienced in the recent, when the recent maybe last 12 months or, or so that you've had to navigate or begin to address in response? So excellent question. Definitely, probably things that others have experienced as well. But a, a significant challenge is maintaining the buy-in and the momentum. And so we can develop things, we can architect these wonderful programs, but if we've built an apparatus that falls in on itself because it cannot be sustained, that's a big challenge. And so something we have encountered and continue to work through even today is what we're building, something that is effectively sustainable for its impact and momentum to be carried. Can we hand this to a division and let them run with it? Does this need corporate sponsorship continuously? And sustainability, the weight of the program, the resource constraint, which resources not simply meaning the budget isn't big enough, but more we've identified those who would value and benefit from this but they're so overwhelmed, we can't add something else to their plate. And so the other challenge has been to find ways in which we can meet them where they are and allow them to have the opportunity to grow and develop, have the opportunity to experience challenge in a way that's safe. So they have the opportunity to fail really quickly, learn, and try again. So everything in leadership should be iterative. It should be something where you practice. But if you're not safe, if you're afraid that because the challenge is a one-time shot and if it doesn't work, you've lost it, you're not going to be successful out of the gate. And so significant challenges we, we currently face is how can we build something that is sustainable in ways that last? something that builds a legacy in the culture. 
And then how can we do this without creating such a strain on resources that people disengage for fear of missing out on other things? So those are two that I face on a daily basis. I think that's so interesting. One of one of the stories I like to tell about why I do what I do and stick with me for a second, you'll get to my I'll, I'll get to my point with it is a story about it's a parable about that there were these babies in the river and this lady saw a baby drowning in the river. She jumped in, she saved the baby. As soon as she gets out, she sees there's another baby drowning in the river. So she jumps in, pulls that baby out. Then there's another one. And so she calls in the village and it's pretty soon the whole village is just pulling these babies out of the water. One one after another and then all of a sudden one of the villagers starts to walk away and they go where are you going we need your help and he says i'm going up the river to see who's throwing these damn babies in the river and so, so the concept there is where do we get to the source how do we get upstream of the problem so that we can address what's causing it rather than just uh, addressing the effects of it and what i like about what you talked about there is that understanding how you change your systems and structures, how you integrate it into the culture so that it's, it's a sustainable solution. It's not just a program that pulls people out, which often happens. Companies bring in a, a training on burnout or a training on a topic or a speaker on a thing and people get better for a little while, right? They get out, they, they do those things, but then it reverts back that whatever caused it the challenge in the first place still exists. And so I love the idea that you're looking at how do I make this sustainable? How do I put in the the things or integrate it into the culture so that it can so that it can be moved forward? What are some of the the strategies that that you've come up with thus far or, or what are you doing in this space in order to try to create that sustainability? One of the things going to your parable what you're sharing there and what we're looking at is really okay, we have this flywheel effect that we need to have take off. And so we've got the momentum, it's going now, how do we keep that going? And so you're exactly right. And that has been a previous approach. Let's bring in an outside resource, jazz everybody up 30 days later, nobody remembers, there's no follow-up. It's just, it is what it is. It was a moment and now it's moved on. It's like looking at a picture, you had a wonderful memory, you put the picture away, memory fades, right? So what are we doing right now? The first thing that we began to do to counteract that and to keep that going was to establish some engagement initiatives where we pushed our leadership in every division to consider what it could be to stop thinking in the necessity of reward based on performance. And we have team members who show up every day. They consistently deliver. What if we moved engagement towards the direction of gratitude? And rather than the performance piece being the driver, we all know that it has to happen. We know that it's needed. I am a firm believer. Our leadership ag teams agree with me to use a phrase, people don't show up to work to suck. They show up to do what they've been asked to do. And we believe the best about our team. So let's move from engagement and recognition being around performance to being around gratitude. So having a gratitude mindset with our teams and then enabling, I love one of our leaders said, you say things that sound really good, but words don't bring change unless they're followed by action. And that actions 
typically have costs. They typically have something involved with that. So we enabled that, something we launched this year in the last about seven months was a way for our teams to say thank you, to show that gratitude in a way that's meaningful and impactful. And we've had a number of those occurrences take place in different ways in different divisions. One thing will take off, a gift will be given to people, things of that nature. And it's just, hey, we appreciate you. You show up, you do what you do, you do it. Our customers value tremendously the work that you produce. And so thank you. And that catches on. Another division wants to do the same thing. So that's the first thing is moving that from performance to gratitude and shifting the mindset there. It's slow. It's a process that will take time. But the initial findings are that, hey, this works. And then the other thing is going to a place of scale. So one of the things, and I think this happens in every organization, I've been in a few, we have a leadership development plan. We have this great idea. It's fantastic. It's huge. And we get into that problem of the apparatus is too big. And so rather than target everybody all at once, where can we have a disproportionate rate of return with the smallest human investment, meaning how are we going to pull the smallest number and still get that return? And so taking leadership development, cohort modeling and reducing it so that we have an effective size. So I love it. I've had the opportunity and privilege to be where I'm talking to three, 400 people at a time. And we've got all these different things happening and engagement and activities. And oh, I get excited. That is fun for an event. But how does it translate your day to day work across six divisions in our case? It doesn't. And so what if we took six or eight key leaders from across those divisions and built a really strong program that allows them to flourish, to grow, to connect, to start the relationship with one another from different divisions and idea sharing? And then we say, you have permission to go and do what is best to go and do in the place that you impact. And so we've started that, we've moved that needle forward. And so uh, to be honest, it's too early for me to say that I have metrics to prove the point in that particular thing, but the buy-in is much stronger because the impact isn't as costly in the fact that we're not pulling everybody all at once. So those two strategies, along with a very deliberate effort to recognize contribution from everybody in a way that's we do something that's called a culture visit. And so it's a great privilege. My role gets to participate in where I get to go talk to our team members across all the divisions on the floor and find out where they are, how things are going, what they would like to see, what they would like to experience, what questions they might have. And so we've really benefited from a strategy that gives us a way to have a very tangible voice from our team and move the needle to gratitude, focus on saying, thank you, not do better, do more. Reduce the scale. So you have a disproportionate rate of return with a small number of frontline supervisors or managers, but then that creates the initial ripple, gets that flywheel moving. 
and then give the people a voice where they really feel that they're heard. So it's not just a survey where they answer some questions and then next quarter it's the same question and nothing's happened from quarter to quarter. But let's actually give them an audience and actually put their words in front of those that will make the changes in their division. And we've been able to benefit from that tremendously. And it can be things like, hey, you know what would make the day better? It's hot. If we could get ice for our drinks without having to go from one end of the facility to the other. Super simple solution. But nonetheless, not something that as a supervisor, a manager, a leader, you're necessarily thinking about, but that's what your team is thinking about. We were able to receive that feedback in a way that was meaningful, engage those team members, and then put that in place. Another thing was different kinds of cooling stations. As I mentioned, being a heat treat shop, it's hot. You want to have a way to not be miserable throughout your entire day. These are incredibly reasonable. They're not expensive, but they are very meaningful to the team. So team has a voice. Our leaders have impact. We're about gratitude first and foremost. That's been the strategy that has helped us, I believe, will carry us past those sustainability challenges that we were faced with. I, I love those examples. And what I really like about them is that they are not extraordinarily costly, that they are integratable and, and easily implemented, and that you get this tremendous upside from small shifts. And when we think about, especially your gratitude example, the long-term effects, and, it, and if I incorporate the neuroscience behind this, the long-term effects of gratitude, and that gratitude creates a connection and activates the heart brain or the neurons that we have within our heart. And so by offering that gratitude, you're actually activating the emotional brain, the emotional center, which is going to create a neuropathway uh, or a reminder in the future of, oh, when I do this, it feels good. Oh, when I perform in this way, the response is a feel-good response, and that's going to further solidify that neuropathway. So now they're actually more likely to do the performance or to perform even better because they want more of that good feeling. Whereas when we respond with good performance with now raising the bar, like now we're going to do even more, now you can accomplish even more, eventually people go, I'm tired of trying to do more. Right. And when I hear you say, great job, you're now going to be rewarded with more work, they disengage and they have a negative response. And so now they're less likely to keep performing at those high levels. So you start to see performance decline, which is what a lot of the studies show around performance reviews, where people get performance reviews and they get even mediocre feedback back on a performance review that their performance actually decreases. They don't step it up to do better. They actually decrease right. because they say that didn't feel good. I don't want to put more effort into that. Like it's, it's not worth it. And not necessarily on a conscious level, it's on a neuro from a neurophysiological perspective. It's on an unconscious level. It's those pathways being re reinforced. And so that's something that I think is really powerful about the, the stain sustainability about that small shift and how it's really going to create a greater, more psychologically safe environment for people and reinforce the practices that you want people to be 
demonstrating or the things you want them to be doing. What would you say is one of the most important things that you think you need to focus on right now in terms of leadership or people development that's a focus for you all? So for us and for me right now, it is being able to really embrace some of the components, use a buzzword in psychological safety of collaborator safety and challenger safety. And so driving that collaboration, what ideas worked here could work in our space, even though our process is different. So let's talk. And so really focusing on driving the conversation and the collaboration. And then the other side of that, hey, we're safe. It is okay to be challenged. And so it is all right for challenge to your process, challenge to your day to be brought forward, especially when it's somebody who is brand new. And so working with our leadership, even in my own space, in my own role, you've done this for a while. You've been in some other spaces, other organizations, you've done this. It's not working like we want it to. Could you consider? So we have a process where we use that phrase and it's very direct. It's a very deliberate feedback mechanism. Have you considered? And so allowing that challenger voice to be safe enough to speak and then blending that with the collaboration. Those are the two pieces, collaboration and challenge and not letting it become conflict, but letting it ultimately become, to use the word again, contribution has been massively important and is something that we in the very right now's moments are digging into and trying to leverage, pull those threads more and more. And, and really where we see this emerging is in our talent acquisition and retention space with leaders in our off shifts or in our little more challenging departments. So don't know if that answers your question directly, but definitely those are the two things that we are really trying to promote, lean into, and hopefully believe that the outcomes will be very positive. And hitting on, you, you mentioned the term psychological safety, and I, I mentioned that earlier as well. And that's the underpinning of those skill sets, right? You've got to have that psychological safety uh, in terms of the interaction so that you can have that challenge or you can have that collaboration. And if it's not there, that makes it much more difficult for those types of actions to take place, right? For people to engage in healthy dialogue around making changes or challenging the way things are are currently done. What do you, maybe you could give just a little bit of an explanation from your perspective of what as being the challenge with creating that psychological safety, with how you train and develop people or put in place the right practices to have that type of environment? Yeah. So I think it's helpful to consider one of the areas where this comes up. And so we're continually training and learning in, in different degrees of a process or different elements of difficulty and how a particular product or customer need needs to be handled. And so something that comes up quite often is a leader will be working with a team member and that team member says, oh, yeah, I got it. And then they do something wrong. And then they go over it again. 
No, I got it. Oh, I do something wrong. And it's this constant repetitive cycle where there is a clear frustration. So it goes back to the leader's EQ. And so that's where we lean into for training and development. And so what I will do, what I will do is take those very real problems, challenges that leader faces. I just, they can't get it. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And I will become that challenging team member. So I become the problem. And then we begin to practice through that. So I can see when their emotions reach that heightened state, when frustration starts to come uh, all the way to the surface. And so a practice that we'll do is engaging in that, but then we pause. And so it allows us to actually be in an environment that's safe to learn. They can be upset. They can say the things that they may wish they could say to a team member, but they know that they shouldn't because of their role. That's okay. They have that safety because of my position. However, what's more important is we actually pause and we begin to ask, why are you feeling this way? What is actually generating the emotion that's causing you to have the reaction that leads to you having an outburst with a new team member who clearly is not getting what you're trying to, to teach? It's not comfortable. We have some leaders who step into that more confidently and others who resist it a lot. They, they don't like it. So it, it's really depends somewhat situationally where I'm at and the person that I'm working with. But it's been incredibly helpful to take the time to help them back up and say, okay, part of my emotional intelligence is self-regulation. So how am I responding to this? Part of my objective is to provide a safe environment for them to learn. And so we have to have that that mentality, it does require self-awareness, going back to the emotional intelligence component. When I get leaders that start to acknowledge that, oh, wait a minute, the pressure is coming from somewhere else within my role. I have this external thing happening. I'm reactionary to that external thing. And I'm now taking that emotional state and I'm spilling it, I'm splashing it onto this new team member who's trying to learn. And again, it's not always the best thing, but it often is a thing within leadership spaces is if you've ever parented, if you've ever had children, it can be just, you're left scratching your head. So did I not just tell you, did we not? Yeah. So why are you coloring on the wall? I wasn't finished with what I was drawing. And it's, so it's one of those things where when we put it in that framework, we have an ability to approach it differently. But when we look at where we are at work and we're that leader who's just super stressed, high demand, lots of things happening, somebody above them is pressing on them, people below them are pressing on them, somebody gets the the overwhelm. And usually it comes out in that training space. And so being able to, to use the exercise of practice safely, say what you've got to say, but also teaching them that you're not wrong. Like it's okay to feel that frustration. It's okay for you to feel aggravated in this. 
that emotion is not lying to you. You're not being wrong or irresponsible to feel that way. But because you feel that way doesn't mean that's how you treat the other person. And it's helping them develop beyond just simply the role function they're in, but in their relationships with their team members. And that builds that credibility and trust with the team members where they realize, hey, I'm an individual. I'm new. I know I've been shown this a lot. I'm not getting it because we all learn differently. We all have to have different levels of exposure to the same process before we're you know, capable of doing it. It's a long way to answer your question, but that's one of the things that we see the greatest return on is getting those leaders to learn, hey, where am I at? Check myself, take yep. my own temperature, breathe, look at the situation, and then remember that rookie, where was I when I started? So and go from there. So I love that. And and the the term to put to that that I, I never knew was conceptual versus embodied self-awareness. Most of us have a conceptual a level of self-awareness. So that's like our strengths, our values, our interests, how we think about ourselves. And it's typically based on our past or our future. It's who we've been or who we want to be. And that's our concept of ourself. But the embodied self-awareness is our present self. It only exists in the moment and it's our current state of existence. So it's our emotions, it's our neurobiology, it's our it's how our physiology is responding in the present moment. It's our current level of coherence and stress and all of those things that you, that you talked about. And when it comes to um, emotional intelligence and self-awareness in particular, Harvard did a study that said 95% of people think they have self-awareness, but only 15% actually do. And so there's a huge gap in, and even I'll admit it myself, that until I spent time in this space and really understood what embodied self-awareness was, I lacked it for sure. I didn't even know, I didn't have a reference structure for what was going on or for my, my reactions or my emotions. And most of us actually do a very poor job of identifying our emotions. Most of us don't have the language to really identify emotions, to really hone in on what emotion we're experiencing. And even when we do, we often mislabel it. And so one of the tools that we use and evolving to exceptional our programs is called Vibonics. And it's an app that uses voice frequency. So voice recognition technology that, that measures the frequencies in your voice, which frequencies correlate to the emotions we're experiencing. And then it tells you your level of emotional intelligence in that moment and the emotions that you're experiencing. And what's really powerful is I often thought of emotional intelligence as a destination, like you either have it or you don't. Yeah. But actually, emotional intelligence is if you want to denominalize it, make it a thing, it's emotional intelligencing. It's something I am doing. And sometimes I'm better and sometimes I'm not. When I'm tired and I've just dealt with a sick child and my grandma passed away and I'm sick, I don't have a lot of emotional intelligence in those moments. My self-awareness is low. My empathy is low because of all those other factors. And so that's probably not a good time for me to give feedback or have a difficult conversation with an employee. So when we can measure that and understand what we're experiencing and then look at those emotions to say, am I angry or am I actually sad? 
am I sad or am I really just, or, or I have a lot of fear. I'm really afraid of what's going to happen in this situation. Then we start to be able to better process what we're experiencing and learn how to express them. But like you said, I think in most cases, this is not an area where leaders spend a lot of time developing. In fact, it's a core part of our neural performance program. But as I've talked to other HR leaders, most programs don't have that component. They don't have that self-awareness piece. They teach leaders how to put budgets together and strategic thinking and financial acumen and all that stuff. That, but they don't have them go deeper internally in terms of their reactability. And when we lack that self-awareness, is a long way to get to, when we lack that self-awareness or when our leaders don't understand what's happening internally or their level of coherence, that's what creates a psychologically safe or unsafe environment. And because that is that happens on even a subconscious level, if a leader comes into an environment with their employees and they are out of coherence, they're in a reactive mode, they're highly stressed, all the things you talked about, they've got deadlines, they've got demands coming down, demands coming up, all those things, everybody around them feels that. Even if they say nothing about it, everyone around them can feel their level of coherence. And so that creates the environment that creates the safety or the not safety and dramatically impacts the productivity and performance of everybody on the team. And so it becomes just really critically important. Yeah, it, it's everything you said. It's so true. And having a language to express it and to communicate it is so powerful and understanding that it's human. And that means it's all of us. It's a shared experience felt differently by every human, but still shared. And that permission to have that, having a language to work in that space is so vital, so helpful to the effectiveness of a leader. It's something that I have a unique privilege in that I have a, you know, great parents, great family came from that background. But one of the things that my dad used to teach me all the time. I would get frustrated playing baseball. I loved baseball. I was pretty good at it, I thought, but I would get frustrated. And that translated into other things, other sports. And so he would pull me aside and he would pause and he would say, the only person in your way is you. And you have to understand why you got in your way. And no one else, bad pitches come to everybody. You, somebody is going to get struck out on a regular basis. It's okay. You're in your own way. You being angry is not wrong. But if you go out there and you try to bat again, while you're this mad, your brain is not going to let your mechanics do what it needs to do. My dad's a fantastic coach. He was one of the greatest voices, still is to this day in my development in my life. But one of those lessons I learned as a junior hire sticks with me today as I'm working with leaders. It's a voice that I still have. And one of the other things he used to teach me and I still do use today is all of us have probably had those moments when we're driving and we've gotten upset or frustrated at someone who had no intention of frustrating and upsetting us. And so something when I was learning to drive different times, just being with him, he would say, the only person who's mad right now is you. 
the only person frustrated is you. Why? And it took me working through that and having those conversations. And yeah, I've had a wonderful privilege in having someone that close to me who can see into my life and speak in those ways. But the ability to be able to converse for myself with myself. And so one of the things I think is super powerful for our leaders is to learn how to talk to themselves, not listen to themselves. And so we spend so much time listening to ourselves that we become paralyzed or it actually makes the problem more pronounced than it really is. Whereas if we talk to ourselves, we could be more effective. We could be more productive if we'd question ourselves. But that feels weird, right? It sounds a little woo, but it is actually very true. It's very effective. It goes back to emotional intelligence. Some 90% of high performers have high emotional intelligence. I believe it was Goldman who, in his research, proved that 127% or greater in your performance, if you can begin to have self-awareness and understand that. And so when we can really get a hold of the value of emotional intelligence, the ROI of creating psychological safety, it starts with you as a person, it starts with you as the leader, starts with you and your position. And just like you said so well, you're not going to hide it. You can be silent, but your body's gonna tell everybody how you're feeling. And being able to own that, being able to step forward and, and confidently say, here's where we are. I appreciate having leaders like that. And I want to always, because of my role, give leaders the opportunity to recognize you don't need anyone else's permission. You can go and do that for yourself. And it's a benefit to you and your team. And it carries outside of work, obviously. Yeah. And for those that want the science behind that, the our heart rates, our heart rate variability is an indicator of our stress level of what our bodies are experiencing. And it is it connects and determines whether our body is in a coherent state, which is really our optimum, our peak performing state. We're able to flow at our best and perform at our best. Or if we're incoherent and we have poor heart rate variability, then we're more likely to be stressed or in a dysregulated nervous system state. And what happens is that our heart rate actually extends upwards of five feet outside of our body so that if we're in the same space as other people, the electromagnetic field that comes out from our heart, we actually entrain or can get into sync with the people that are close to us. And so if you walk into a meeting with a, a leader who is super stressed and running behind and has all, and they don't know how to regulate themselves, it can put everyone into that disrupted nervous system state and impact everyone's ability to really be performing and responding at their best. And so when we go through crisis communications and we go through really challenging situations that we have, if we're not aware of how to regulate before we make decisions, we can make really bad decisions and not even know it, not even know the state that we're in. And it's not what appears on the surface because we right. can appear really calm, like we have it all together. And your heart rate variability could be telling you you are in an extremely stressed state. And I know this because I track mine all day long. And there are times where 
my heart rate variability measure goes off and says, you're really stressed right now. And I don't even realize it. I don't recognize it. And I have to stop and do some breathing and bring my nervous system back to a balanced state because I'm, I'm not aware of it. So one final concept I want to get your thoughts on before we wrap up is a theory that I have around, uh, and, it, and it relates to the psychological safety, and it's around that because we all went through the pandemic, and going through the pandemic created such tremendous amounts of stress. We experienced stress at work. People were afraid of losing their jobs. They had to work differently. Everything changed. We had kids at home. Maybe you were doing homeschooling or, or maybe for the first time ever you were at home with your spouse all day. Those that had to work were facing the potential risks of being in the workplace or in hospitals or nurses or essential workers who then faced getting potentially sick. We didn't necessarily know the long-term consequences of COVID. All those things we all know. Right. So, so much stress in those years. It built up and we never really got a break from it. We had it almost consistently. And we know what happens with stress is over time, we experience a stressful event. And if we don't bring ourselves back down, it then builds up. We have another stressful event. We have another stressful event and it keeps building up. And it's almost like it builds up like we're carrying these boulders of stress around with us because we haven't reset. We haven't brought ourselves back down. And so our bodies are carrying around all this extra stress that we're not really consciously aware of because we're, we're not thinking about bringing it back down to a baseline. So one of my theories is that because we went through that, that people haven't done the work to fully recover from that. So while we're our head brains, our, our heads are ready to move on, we're like, I'm good. I'm sick of the pandemic stuff. And right. oh, I just want to be in the future and be back to normal. Our bodies may not be reacting the same way. And so we may be more easily triggered into emotional states. We may more easily fall into those that out of coherence or dysregulated state or that high stress state in response to things that before might not have bothered us. But because our load is so high, it doesn't take as big of a trigger to, to put us into that state, which makes creating a psychologically safe environment a whole lot harder, right? Because before it didn't take as much to bring people back down. They didn't have, they had more of a capacity to deal with stressful things because they weren't carrying around all this stress already. What do you think about that? What are your thoughts on that? And have you seen that at all within your own organization? Oh, first of all, I think the theory is very well-founded. Certainly there is evidence I see within our organization as well as personal relationships not even related to work. Some of the language heard often is we're still recovering and still have ongoing post-traumatic stress that is taking place. And so I think you're very much on to something with that theory. I think it's a fantastic conversation. Uh, I would agree that there's a lot of value being had in talking about where we've not recovered to pre-pandemic levels in our own internal states. So as you've already mentioned in, in the conversation, talking about our head brain and our heart brain, and they are distinctly different. And so one may be fully ready to go in the conceptual space, that head brain, but that's not who we are wholly. That's not the entirety of our being. And so as a being, we're not ready to move. 
is something I'm not a professional therapist. I can't speak from some platform of authority, but the language I use often is your brain or your mind is ready, but your heart still has the residue from what previously occurred. And that residue can leave a stain. And so we need to do the work and have the time in order to really truly get the residue out and we don't store residue mentally we store it in our heart and that sounds again a little bit soft a little bit squishy i'm sure but it was wild and for the largest percentage of our workforce no one has encountered what we encountered during that time with the suddenness in which it occurred and so I've had the unfortunate reality of knowing those close to me that I love and care for who lost everything in a, a house fire. You don't go to bed at night thinking tomorrow it's all gone. That's not something that you would go to that person who, in his case, he's realizing he's having conversation um, about photographs and some journals that he had from relatives you wouldn't say to him, hey, get over it. That was five years ago. Because in that statement alone, first, you expose that you do not have the emotional intelligence that you have said that you do have. And second, you're not giving him the opportunity to be safe in the conversation. It's very real. He lost something very tangible, very valuable, and we all collectively lost something we all collectively endured a broken illusion that we thought was incredibly safe on a global scale and it in many ways happened overnight and so i believe the theory is solid i believe that the approach is first and foremost kindness and consideration and i think as leaders as practitioners in our space of hr in my space of leadership, talent development, it's recognizing that the function of work does demand that head brain be ready to go. But the effectiveness of our leaders and teams requires the whole person to be ready to go. And so where does that show up in the world of work most immediately? In my experience, it's timeline. So we can put a project together we can put something to a place of launch and we're ready to go and cognitively we've checked the boxes but when we bring that to the team and we ask the team to initiate engage and move forward are their whole persons ready because there is a new fully entrenched maybe residual thing inside of them that has not reached a place of confidence yet. We do, if we can remember, this is the people, they're sharing the same thing. We're all humans. We all have the same human being essence that is out there. If we can start at the human level and work from there, the cognitive level, the practical level, those things usually take care of themselves. And so, that would be probably more words to respond to that than necessary, but I think it's a fantastic piece that needs more conversation and more thought around how do we welcome, how do we nurture, 
and how as businesses and organizations in the global economy do we bring our teams to a place and us as individuals to a place where we can say this happened but we've done the work we're going to let you do the work we're going to do this collectively and together and we're going to get the residue out before it stains because once that sets creates a whole nether layer of challenge so let's not rush with such unnecessary need towards something until we know that we're ready and let's expect hope is a big word for me hope is something that is a value of mine but go there with everything but something that i love about hope is that it is always believing the best of the future and so we all if given the opportunity have a reason to hope and hope is a voice that won't lie to you and if we as leaders as those in places of hr in operations in finance it really doesn't matter your role title and function you're a human if you can remember as a human that we have hope that our organization that our customers the organizations we interact with the relationships we enjoy we're all collectively in this because that's what the pandemic taught us as well we're all collectively engaged and so if we can actually work from that perspective giving space providing opportunity and allowing for as i like to say cliche it may be but allowing hope to heal and work and allow recovery of the heart to happen the measurable objectives and outcomes will be exponentially greater and the ROI over that short period of time that realistically is needed will be so large does it look great on a spreadsheet maybe not is it hard to actualize maybe is the value of the effort clearly present i would say 100% I, I love so much of what you just said there. And I'm going to give you a second to give a, 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 a final thought in a minute before we, we wrap up. But I want to hit on especially your, your comment there of our heads may be ready, but if our bodies aren't, it's going to hinder us. It's going to hinder our effectiveness and our ability to really get the work done that we want to get done. And so if we're seeing this, if we're seeing that there's still this recovery that needs to come into play, then getting back to the humanness, as you said, getting back to who we are as humans and understanding how our neurobiology and neurophysiology works, how we operate so that we can change the practices and do the work necessary to bring ourselves back to a balanced state to evolve through this challenging experience that we had and come out the other side stronger, more resilient, more prepared, more emotionally intelligent, more aware of how to utilize our resources and all of our wisdom that exists within ourselves, we're going to actually come out so much stronger. And so the organizations that are out there that are willing to take that leap and to really work with 
not just their leaders, certainly their leaders, but not just their leaders, but potentially all everyone within their organization to do that work, to understand the impacts of the stress experience that we've had and how to mitigate and bring people back into a balanced state and create psychologically safe environments where people are not triggered by their interactions and their communications and how they're working with one another is going to have huge impacts. And the organizations that choose to lean into that and do that proactively, I think will substantially outperform any of their competitors in the similar space or even in, in different spaces. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there and the information that we need on how to do that already exists. It's not as yes. though it's a problem we don't know how to solve. We actually know how to solve it. It just requires the the investment and not huge time investment, but just a, a, an incremental investment in the practices that'll create the results that we want to see and help leaders and employees know how to do that effectively. So Caleb, thank you so much. This has been awesome. I think we could go on and on probably all day. For sure. <laughs> so any final thoughts for our audience before we wrap this up? I would just say to the leader in the middle, the hardest place out there, so many of us live there. Remember, you matter. Your influence is bigger than you realize. You're living, you're loved. Let hope be a strategy. Uh, I've said it already, but doesn't matter how squeezed you might feel in the middle. You have a greater influence than you realize. So go live big, have the impact that you know you can have. And uh, don't be in your own way to share some of my dad's advice. And and I have to say, I really loved your your dad's advice. And I think the more people that understand or appreciate that, understand how we show up matters, uh, how we feel and how we experience our lives really matters to what happens in them, to what the results are of our efforts, that by living and embodying that, it not only impacts us in our workplaces, but it impacts our families and especially our children who now today are having probably the most difficult time. The statistics are, are scary for those of us that are parents as yes. to the rates of depression and challenges and the things that our kids are experiencing. And so if for no other reason, I think our leaders need to jump in and our people need to jump in as, as we focus on our own development, it's for our kids to really do the work ourselves so that we can guide and nurture them to better understand how to live and evolve in the world that we live in. As we wrap up this episode, as I always say at the end of every episode, I want to remind our listeners to just always keep evolving, always keep growing, always keep looking for those opportunities to rewire your neural pathways in ways that can create more exceptional life experiences for you on your performance journey. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy the opportunities. Enjoy the experience. You only get to live one life. You might as well live an exceptional one. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day, and we'll be back again next week with another episode. Welcome back to this week's episode of Evolving to Exceptional. This week, we have a learning and talent development manager, Caleb Sheet, with us here today. He's from Apollo Heat Treating, Brazing, and Metal Finishing, which is a fantastic organization that's just doing amazing work based on our prior conversations with people and performance and development and leadership development in, in particular. And Caleb 
has a really interesting backstory as to how he got into learning and development, learning and talent development to begin with. So Caleb, I'm going to give you a chance to give us your kind of unique segue into this space and then tell us a little bit about why it is you do what you do and what it is that, that makes you so passionate about it. Yeah, thank you, Jessica, for that introduction and the opportunity here to share uh, about my background, my story. Yeah, definitely not your standard approach. Uh, I started out and I was looking for some way to make money because I was getting out of high school and I wanted to make money. That's what it was about for me. So I went into the manufacturing space wasn't long in that space and realized that I could make more money in the construction and carpentry space. So I made the move and got into that. And so for several years, I was a residential carpenter. I became a journeyman carpenter and I was happily enjoying that until we had this wonderful thing happen in 2008. And the whole world of building houses started to become incredibly constricted. And so because of that, I actually said, I've got to make a move, get back into manufacturing. I have some leadership. I have some capacity. I can contribute. I can do things. And so I jumped back in and refound what I enjoyed there, which was bringing about quality, bringing about problem solving, energizing people around those issues. And after a few years, really got my feet back in the door and in 2011, started making some moves in 2013, and I had an encounter with a very senior leader. She was well above my rank and file, if you will, and she encouraged me to apply for a position in a leadership development role, and I declined her invitation. She reached back out. She pushed me. She said, you have what it takes. You need to put your put yourself out there, just encouraging me. Her name was Jessica. And so I finally reached back out and said, hey, I know I don't have the background and I don't check all the boxes in the job description. Looking back over a decade now, who does? But the reality is I went ahead and took her push as the impetus to get me going. And so I, I put my name in the hat, feeling the immense amounts of not worthy, not ready, imposter syndrome, interviewed, got the position, and it has been a whirlwind over the last decade, a little longer now, working and moving through these spaces of learning and development, leadership development, being a talent manager now, where I'm at and able to aid our organization in a pretty broad way both from our learning and development side, but also from our talent acquisition, helping the leaders from our frontline supervisors up really get a hold of the way they tangibly impact the lives of the people who report to them and interact with them. It's what excites me about leadership is that it allows a regular individual you don't have to have some kind of special background or some incredible story. We all have great stories. We all have something to offer. And when you can move yourself into that position to actually maximize your influence in a way that brings out the best of the people around you, the team you're working with and leading, it starts to have a ripple effect. And so one of the things I say in my role is, 
I tell our leaders to remember they should always look for bigger and bigger rocks. And those rocks are an opportunity to throw into our culture, see it as a pond. And when you throw in that rock, it creates a ripple. And the more you can do, the more impact you can have, the greater your influence becomes, the more those ripples start to reach outward and travel throughout their organization. And having a privileged seat of getting to watch young leaders, new leaders, leaders who have to relearn things because they've been in roles for decades has just been very exciting. So I, I love the last thing that you said, and I want to capitalize on that with, with a follow-up question around leaders who've been in roles for decades and they're having to relearn. And I think sometimes, in my experience, leaders get overly confident. They've done it for a long enough time that they feel like they're good. They know what they need to know. They've been doing it. And what, in your experience, have you seen be some of those new skill sets or those new capabilities that leaders maybe didn't develop who've been in roles for a long time and really still need to bring development or grow themselves in order to be able to demonstrate those capabilities? Probably the glaring example that I see most common is transitioning away from command and control. And these are leaders who took position of manager supervisor in the 80s. And in the 80s, that was still very prevalent. As we know, things have changed. And so understanding that it's not a challenge to their competency, but it's an opportunity for them to actually be effective, more effective with their current teams has really led to them growing in the conversational space in a place in which they can show empathy they can lean on their experience, taking them back to a place where they can reset with a rookie mindset, though they have all of the experience. Those have been the things that have been a lot of fun. Having a conversation just last month with one of those leaders, 34 years, he's been in his role being very effective. And yet he's realizing one of the things he said to me was, I don't know how to talk to our team anymore because I'm not used to having to explain myself. And mm. if you can imagine in an environment where a heat treat shop, it's not, it's not a controlled environment. It's not where everything's squeaky clean. You're not coming in there wearing your best clothes. It's a tough environment. And our team is putting in hard work to produce the outcomes our customers need. And his desire was to show them that he was for his team, but he was struggling to communicate, struggling to get them to recognize that he really did care. And he felt like he just came off too harsh. He was just too direct. That was how he, in his words, grew up into his role. And through a series of conversations, a couple of role-playing interactions, we realized that he actually is fantastic at those conversations when he's willing to recognize that his leadership hat is bigger than just the boss. And mm -hmm. so that was a fantastic win very recently that we had. And it was exciting because as he began to share, he realized that there was so much more care, something that he could anchor to in his own person was looking at some of these young 18, 19, 20 year olds that are just walking in the door that he was seeing as frustrating they were challenging. He began to 
question whether he could communicate with them, as I mentioned. But in one of our scenario workshops, if you will, where he and I were going back and forth, I asked him to speak with me just like he was trying to help his oldest grandchild be successful with some of their college work. And he turned into this mentor coach that was just a completely different expression. And so we translated that over into his work environment. As we did that, he began to realize it was all there. He had all of those skills. He had all of the necessary mechanisms. He just had not considered that applied because he saw himself in that 1986, this is who I was supposed to be and it's who I've been and I've been successful and in reality, all of that success is still very much there. It's an anchor of credibility that he has. I love seeing that happen. I, I love that example. And it highlights to me a little bit around what I see a lot in leaders who know what they need to do. They actually know how to do it. And they maybe even want to do it. But there's something that's blocking them that's getting in their way. And that example highlights it perfectly that typically it is something that some some sort of pathway, neuropathway that they've developed, way of being, way of operating in response to their life experience, right? As right. we live our lives, we develop these ways of operating, these ways of living and experiencing and interacting in the world. And we develop them because of the world that we're in, the environment that we're in. And so he developed a certain set of skill sets because of the environment that he led in, which is absolutely appropriate. And and then, but then when we need to change them, we don't always see why it's blocked or what's blocking it. And so when you can work with somebody to identify how to bring that perspective, how to rewire that neural pathway, how to approach it from a, a different mindset, then you can call cultivate those changes. And one of the ways I like to think about it from an analogy standpoint is it's oftentimes we think that we're broken or there's something wrong with us. And leaders are like, there's nothing wrong. I'm good. They right. don't want to think that there's something that needs to be fixed. And so I like to say, instead of thinking of yourself as broken, maybe you're looking into a broken mirror. Maybe the mirror is actually the thing that's broken and you're perfect. You have developed the neuropathways that you needed to develop for the environment and experiences that you've had. And the environment is changing, which means that we have to change as well. And so it's not that we're broken. It's just that we have to grow and evolve. It's just that we have to adjust our strategies, our ways of operating in response to new environmental conditions, new environmental experiences. And so what's nice about that is then it's not like there's anything wrong. The leader didn't do something wrong for 20, 20 right. 25 years, right? What they did served them well. And maybe a new strategy is going to serve them better now, which I think can be really powerful. Yeah, no, I knew I would learn something in this conversation and that analogy is fantastic. So I'm borrowing that. Yeah. The idea of getting a different mirror, that's just fantastic. So thank you for sharing such a good analogy right out of the gate here. So Yeah, and it's helpful because, and it works with, with employees too, in that we aren't broken, right? There's nothing wrong with you. I'm not trying to fix you when I'm developing and growing you. What I'm trying to do is work with you to create new ways of operating that might serve you better, exactly. that might help you perform better, that might help you live better. And when we do that, we create 
create better results. We create better outcomes for everybody. And I think your leader example was bang on there as, as, as an example of a situation where somebody was able to accomplish that. And now he wins and the people that he's mentoring get a tremendously effective mentor who has all of this experience and background. And so everybody ends up better off. Oh, absolutely. And it's one of the things is, as most would recognize, we want to see stuff that's tangible. We want to have an ROI. We want to measure it. We want to put a score around it. And in the space that I operate, that in retention, that in our engagement scores. And so when you look at that leader's particular environment, just as he's began to express that, those measures have gone up just significantly and in doing so, it also, the other thing I love about it is when you see somebody in a senior position, recognize that they have a new capacity to exercise that they didn't know they had, it inspires everyone around them in their organization. And so it, tr it tends to lead to a kind of giving permission, which I think is interesting when you work with leaders who they've been asked to take ownership of their role ownership of that uh, department, whatever it might be. And yet they, they are hesitant. They're a little bit reserved because they're not sure. And then they see their leader step forward in a new way and they're ready to go. And that's exactly what's happening in that space is it's just getting very exciting to watch as they're learning. And that, that ripple effect has continued and it's going to continue to be positive. I'm confident. So, and you mentioned the ripple effect and the ripple effect can either be positive or negative, right? So we're, you're highlighting the positive effect of engagement scores going up and the impact of those efforts. And I think it's equally, if not maybe even more impactful or important to pay attention to the ripple effect of leaders and managers who are not developing and growing, who are not receiving coaching, training, and development, that the effects of even just being good rather than great. And the difference in performance of those teams can be pretty significant when you look at the metrics that come out of the teams that have the highest engagement versus the teams that are at average engagement. And so you've got to almost ask the question of like, why wouldn't you invest in leader and manager development? Why wouldn't every single leader and manager be continuously working on their personal and development of capabilities, their personal development of their own sense of self-awareness, right? Oh, absolutely. For me, the beauty is in the fact that there's abundant evidence to prove that. So when an ask is made, it costs money. There's an investment. There's often not hard numbers. Leadership development is one of those squishy things that's hard to define sometimes. But when we pull that scope back a little bit and we get a little more precise in what we're actually doing across the organization in a larger scale way. It's exactly what you're saying. And, and I get the benefit of seeing division to division comparison. And so looking across the multiple spaces, I'm able to say, hey, here is a, an individual in a place in which they've said yes. And here is an immediately tangible result. So let's look at an ROI on retention versus attrition cost. And when we start to put those numbers, which are very tangible in action, we start to see cause and a reason to invest 
Now let's look at this division. They've chosen to avoid or resist or push back on these opportunities. And now let's look at their cost and look at where they are. And it translates throughout the organization. So it's not just our leaders. It becomes those that are direct reports on down to department leadership to now we have hourly team members who are consistently having to be retrained, replaced, replenishing staff from the ground up, which ultimately exhausts the leaders because we cannot be as effective as we could be. And really that hinges on the thing that's hard to get a hold of, which is what's the ROI of leadership development? We just saw it. One of those very obvious ways is when we start to see retention go up, when we start to see engagement go up. When I have 60% of a division or more telling me in an internal survey, hey, I would recommend to my friends and family, I want them to come work here. Every time there's an opening, we have a large number of referrals from our own team members versus a division where we get none. It, it does begin to paint that picture in such a way that the investment cost is worth it. And so then you move into the, the other side of the conversation, those leaders that are resistant, you've still got to work with them. You've still got to help them understand one of those ways that they push back is I've found they're, they're afraid of being challenged. And so when you reach into their division and how they do the work. And when I walk onto a shop floor, step into an environment, I always show up as a consultant. So my job is to help you be successful. I want to see this division become profitable. Ultimately, that's what we are about. Businesses exist to make money, but how we make that money matters. And so if we can make that money with a team that's engaged, that feels confident and safe in the work that they're doing, that understands the contribution to the society around them in a way that is meaningful and matters personally, you will actually drive your profitability much faster and in a much more expansive way than by simply the mechanisms of command and control. I would rather get contribution than compliance from team members, regardless of what their role title is. Yeah. And I think you highlight there the investment in leadership development. And in a lot of cases, really, we invest in leadership development and call it leadership development simply because we don't or there's a perception that we don't have the money to invest in everybody in the same right. way. But ultimately, those skill sets that we talk about are truly skill sets virtually everyone needs. And in most cases, it kind of centers around last night, I was reading around, again, the adult stages of development, the stages that we go through as adults, we used to think that we were fully developed, our brains were fully formed by the time we were about 2022. 20, and now we know that's not true. And that as right. adults, we go through these other stages of development, but many people don't. Many people stop at a lower stage because they're not challenged with the self-awareness concept that you talked about, the willingness to admit, to be challenged and to admit that there's more growth 
possible, that there's more opportunities to, to gain perspective on ourselves and on others and on how to manage and grow people. And so I think often we end up thinking, oh, if I, I only need to invest in my leaders when really, if we thought of everyone as leaders, we'd probably get tenfold the return. But at a minimum investment in leaders, we know definitively the statistics and the, the research is just tremendous on the fact that, and, and you mentioned it in your own teams, you can see that those with the higher engagement have the higher output, that they have the more significant results, the more significant performance, and that the results are there. But many organizations still struggle with it in general. I'm curious, your organization clearly is a, a on the forefront of caring about people and investing in development and, and training, just having a person like in a role like yourself of a learning and development manager or trainer in the organization. What have been some of the challenges despite that, despite all of the great things your organization's doing? What have you seen be some of the challenges you've experienced in the recent, in the recent maybe last 12 months or, or so that you've had to navigate or begin to address in response? So excellent question. Definitely, probably things that others have experienced as well, but a, a significant challenge is maintaining the buy-in and the momentum. And so we can develop things, we can architect these wonderful programs, but if we've built an apparatus that falls in on itself because it cannot be sustained, that's a big challenge. And so something we have encountered and continue to work through even today is what we're building, something that is effectively sustainable for its impact and momentum to be carried. Can we hand this to a division and let them run with it? Does this need corporate sponsorship continuously? And sustainability, the weight of the program, the resource constraint, which resources not simply meaning the budget isn't big enough, but more we've identified those who would value and benefit from this but they're so overwhelmed, we can't add something else to their plate. And so the other challenge has been to find ways in which we can meet them where they are and allow them to have the opportunity to grow and develop, have the opportunity to experience challenge in a way that's safe. So they have the opportunity to fail really quickly, learn, and try again. So everything in leadership should be iterative. It should be something where you practice. But if you're not safe, if you're afraid that because the challenge is a one-time shot and if it doesn't work, you've lost it, you're not going to be successful out of the gate. And so significant challenges we, we currently face is how can we build something that is sustainable in ways that last? something that builds a legacy in the culture. And then how can we do this without creating such a strain on resources that people disengage for fear of missing out on other things? So those are two that I face on a daily basis. 
I think that's so interesting. One of one of the stories I like to tell about why I do what I do and stick with me for a second. You'll get to my I'll, I'll get to my point with it is a story about it's a parable about that there were these babies in the river and this lady saw a baby drowning in the river. She jumped in. She saved the baby. As soon as she gets out, she sees there's another baby drowning in the river. So she jumps in, pulls that baby out. Then there's another one. So she calls in the village and it's pretty soon the whole village is just pulling these babies out of the water. One one after another. And then all of a sudden, one of the villagers starts to walk away and they go, where are you going? We need your help. And he says, I'm going up the river to see who's throwing these damn babies in the river. And so, so the concept there is where do we get to the source? How do we get upstream of the problem so that we can address what's causing it rather than just uh, addressing the effects of it? And what I like about what you talked about there is that understanding how you change your systems and structures, how you integrate it into the culture so that it's a sustainable solution. It's not just a program that pulls people out, which often happens. Companies bring in a, a training on burnout or a training on a topic or a speaker on a thing and people get better for a little while, right? They get out, they, they do those things, but then it reverts back that whatever caused it the challenge in the first place still exists. And so I love the idea that you're looking at how do I make this sustainable? How do I put in the the things or, or integrate it into the culture so that it can so that it can be moved forward? What are some of the the strategies that that you've come up with thus far or, or what are you doing in this space in order to try to create that sustainability? One of the things going to your parable, what you're sharing there and what we're looking at is really okay, we have this flywheel effect that we need to have take off. And so we've got the momentum, it's going now. How do we keep that going? And so you're exactly right. That has been a previous approach. Let's bring in an outside resource, jazz everybody up 30 days later, nobody remembers. There's no follow-up. It's just, it is what it is. It was a moment and now it's moved on. It's like looking at a picture, you had a wonderful memory, you put the picture away memory fades, right? So what are we doing right now? The first thing that we began to do to counteract that and to keep that going was to establish some engagement initiatives where we pushed our leadership in every division to consider what it could be to stop thinking in the necessity of reward based on performance. And we have team members who show up every day. They consistently deliver. What if we moved engagement towards the direction of gratitude? And rather than the performance piece being the driver, we all know that it has to happen. We know that it's needed. I am a firm believer. Our leadership ag teams agree with me to use a phrase, people don't show up to work to suck. They show up to do what they've been asked to do. And we believe the best about our team. So let's move from engagement and recognition being around performance to being around gratitude. So having a gratitude mindset with our teams and then enabling, I love one of our leaders said, you say things that sound really good, but words don't bring change unless they're followed by action. And that actions typically have costs. They typically have something involved with that. So we enabled that. Something we launched this year in the last about seven months was a way for our teams to say thank you, to show that gratitude 
in a way that's meaningful and impactful. And we've had a number of those occurrences take place in different ways in different divisions. One thing will take off, gift will be given to people, things of that nature. And it's just, hey, we appreciate you. You show up, you do what you do, you do it. Our customers value tremendously the work that you produce. And so thank you. And that catches on. Another division wants to do the same thing. So that's the first thing is moving that from performance to gratitude and shifting the mindset there. It's slow. It's a process that will take time. But the initial findings are that, hey, this works. And then the other thing is going to a place of scale. So one of the things, and I think this happens in every organization, I've been in a few, we have a leadership development plan. We have this great idea. It's fantastic. It's huge. And we get into that problem of the apparatus is too big. And so rather than target everybody all at once, where can we have a disproportionate rate of return with the smallest human investment, meaning how are we going to pull the smallest number and still get that return? And so taking leadership development, cohort modeling and reducing it so that we have an effective size. So I love it. I've had the opportunity and privilege to be where I'm talking to three, 400 people at a time. And we've got all these different things happening and engagement and activities. And oh, I get excited. That is fun for an event. But how does it translate your day to day work across six divisions in our case? It doesn't. And so what if we took six or eight key leaders from across those divisions and built a really strong program that allows them to flourish, to grow, to connect, to start the relationship with one another from different divisions and idea sharing. And then we say, you have permission to go and do what is best to go and do in the place that you impact. And so we've started that, we've moved that needle forward. And so uh, to be honest, it's too early for me to say that I have metrics to prove the point in that particular thing, but the buy-in is much stronger because the impact isn't as costly in the fact that we're not pulling everybody all at once. So those two strategies, along with a very deliberate effort to recognize contribution from everybody in a way that's we do something that's called a culture visit. And so it's a great privilege. My role gets to participate in where I get to go talk to our team members across all the divisions on the floor and find out where they are, how things are going what they would like to see, what they would like to experience, what questions they might have. And so we've really benefited from a strategy that gives us a way to have a very tangible voice from our team and move the needle to gratitude, focus on saying, thank you, not do better, do more. Reduce the scale so you have a disproportionate rate of return with a small number of frontline supervisors or managers but then that creates the initial ripple, gets that flywheel moving, and then give the people a voice where they really feel that they're heard. So it's not just a survey where they answer some questions and then next quarter it's the same question and nothing's happened from quarter to quarter. 
but let's actually give them an audience and actually put their words in front of those that will make the changes in their division. And we've been able to benefit from that tremendously. And it can be things like, hey, you know what would make the day better? It's hot. If we could get ice for our drinks without having to go from one end of the facility to the other. Super simple solution. But nonetheless, not something that as a supervisor, a manager, a leader, you're necessarily thinking about, but that's what your team is thinking about. We were able to receive that feedback in a way that was meaningful, engage those team members, and then put that in place. Another thing was different kinds of cooling stations. As I mentioned, being a heat treat shop, it's hot. You want to have a way to not be miserable throughout your entire day. These are incredibly reasonable. They're not expensive, but they are very meaningful to the team. So team has a voice, our leaders have impact, we're about gratitude first and foremost. That's been the strategy that has helped us, I believe will carry us past those sustainability challenges that we were faced with. I, I love those examples and what I really like about them is that they are not extraordinarily costly, that they are integratable and and easily implemented and that you get this tremendous upside from small shifts. And when we think about especially your gratitude example, the long-term effects, and if I incorporate the neuroscience behind this, the long-term effects of gratitude and that gratitude creates a connection and activates the heart brain or the neurons that we have within our heart. And so by offering that gratitude, you're actually activating the emotional brain, the emotional center, which is going to create a neuropathway uh, or a reminder in the future of, oh, when I do this, it feels good. Oh, when I perform in this way, the response is a feel-good response, and that's going to further solidify that neuropathway. So now they're actually more likely to do the performance or to perform even better because they want more of that good feeling. Whereas when we respond with good performance with now raising the bar, like now we're going to do even more, now you can accomplish even more, eventually people go, I'm tired of trying to do more. Right. And when I hear you say, great job, you're now going to be rewarded with more work, they disengage and they have a negative response. And so now they're less likely to keep performing at those high levels. So you start to see performance decline, which is what a lot of the studies show around performance reviews, where people get performance reviews and they get even mediocre feedback back on a performance review that their performance actually decreases. They don't step it up to do better. They actually decrease right. because they say that didn't feel good. I don't want to put more effort into that. Like it's, it's not worth it. And not necessarily on a conscious level, it's on a neuro ner from a neurophysiological perspective. It's on an unconscious level. It's those pathways being re reinforced. And so that's something that I think is really powerful about the, the stain sustainability about that small shift and how it's really going to create a greater, more psychologically safe environment for people and reinforce the practices that you want people to be demonstrating or the things you want them to be doing. 
What would you say is one of the most important things that you think you need to focus on right now in terms of leadership or people development that's a focus for you all? So for us and for me right now, it is being able to really embrace some of the components, use a buzzword in psychological safety of collaborator safety and challenger safety. And so driving that collaboration, what ideas worked here could work in our space, even though our process is different. So let's talk. And so really focusing on driving the conversation and the collaboration. And then the other side of that, hey, we're safe. It is okay to be challenged. And so it is all right for challenge to your process, challenge to your day to be brought forward, especially when it's somebody who is brand new. And so working with our leadership, even in my own space, in my own role, you've done this for a while. You've been in some other spaces, other organizations, you've done this. It's not working like we want it to. Could you consider so we have a process where we use that phrase and it's very direct. It's a very deliberate feedback mechanism. Have you considered? And so allowing that challenger voice to be safe enough to speak and then blending that with the collaboration. Those are the two pieces, collaboration and challenge and not letting it become conflict, but letting it ultimately become, to use the word again, contribution has been massively important and is something that we in the very right now's moments are digging into and trying to leverage, pull those threads more and more. And, and really where we see this emerging is in our talent acquisition and retention space with leaders in our off shifts or in our little more challenging departments. So don't know if that answers your question directly, but definitely those are the two things that we are really trying to promote, lean into, and hopefully believe that the outcomes will be very positive. And hitting on, you, you mentioned the term psychological safety, and I, I mentioned that earlier as well. And that's the underpinning of those skill sets, right? You've got to have that psychological safety uh, in terms of the interaction so that you can have that challenge or you can have that collaboration. And if it's not there, that makes it much more difficult for those types of actions to take place, right? For people to engage in healthy dialogue around making changes or challenging the way things are are currently done. What do you, maybe you could give just a little bit of an explanation from your perspective of what as being the challenge with creating that psychological safety, with how you train and develop people or put in place the right practices to have that type of environment? Yeah. So I think it's helpful to consider one of the areas where this comes up. And so we're continually training and learning in, in different degrees of a process or different elements of difficulty and how a particular product or customer need needs to be handled. And so something that comes up quite often is a leader will be working with a team member and that team member says, oh, yeah, I got it. And then they do something wrong. And they go over it again. No, I got it. Oh, I do something wrong. 
And it's this constant repetitive cycle where there is a clear frustration. So it goes back to the leader's EQ. And so that's where we lean into for training and development. And so what I will do, what I will do is take those very real problems, challenges that leader faces. I just that they can't get it. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And I will become that challenging team member. So I become the problem. And then we begin to practice through that. So I can see when their emotions reach that heightened state, when frustration starts to come uh, all the way to the surface. And so a practice that we'll do is engaging in that, but then we pause. And so it allows us to actually be in an environment that's safe to learn. They can be upset. They can say the things that they may wish they could say to a team member, but they know that they shouldn't because of their role. That's okay. They have that safety because of my position. However, what's more important is we actually pause and we begin to ask, why are you feeling this way? What is actually generating the emotion that's causing you to have the reaction that leads to you having an outburst with a new team member who clearly is not getting what you're trying to, to teach? It's not comfortable. We have some leaders who step into that more confidently and others who resist it a lot. They, they don't like it. So it, it really depends somewhat situationally where I'm at and the person that I'm working with. But it's been incredibly helpful to take the time to help them back up and say, okay, part of my emotional intelligence is self-regulation. So how am I responding to this? Part of my objective is to provide a safe environment for them to learn. And so we have to have that that mentality, it does require self-awareness, going back to the emotional intelligence component. When I get leaders that start to acknowledge that, oh, wait a minute, the pressure is coming from somewhere else within my role. I have this external thing happening. I'm reactionary to that external thing. And I'm now taking that emotional state and I'm spilling it, I'm splashing it onto this new team member who's trying to learn. And again, it's not always the best thing, but it often is a thing within leadership spaces is if you've ever parented, if you've ever had children, it can be just, you're left scratching your head. So did I not just tell you, did we not? Yeah. So why are you coloring on the wall? I wasn't finished with what I was drawing. And it's, so it's one of those things where when we put it in that framework, we have an ability to approach it differently. But when we look at where we are at work and we're that leader who's just super stressed, high demand, lots of things happening, somebody above them is pressing on them, people below them are pressing on them, somebody gets the the overwhelm. And usually it comes out in that training space. And so being able to, to use the exercise of practice safely, say what you've got to say, but also teaching them that you're not wrong. Like it's okay to feel that frustration. It's okay for you to feel aggravated in this. 
that emotion is not lying to you. You're not being wrong or irresponsible to feel that way. But because you feel that way doesn't mean that's how you treat the other person. And it's helping them develop beyond just simply the role function they're in, but in their relationships with their team members. And that builds that credibility and trust with the team members where they realize, hey, I'm an individual. I'm new. I know I've been shown this a lot. I'm not getting it because we all learn differently. We all have to have different levels of exposure to the same process before we're you know, capable of doing it. It's a long way to answer your question, but that's one of the things that we see the greatest return on is getting those leaders to learn, hey, where am I at? Check myself, take yep. my own temperature, breathe, look at the situation, and then remember that rookie, where was I when I started? So and go from there. So I love that. And and the, the term to put to that, that I, I never knew was conceptual versus embodied self-awareness. Most of us have a conceptual a level of self-awareness. So that's like our strengths, our values, our interests, how we think about ourselves. And it's typically based on our past or our future. It's who we've been or who we want to be. And that's our concept of ourself. But the embodied self-awareness is our present self. It only exists in the moment and it's our current state of existence. So it's our emotions, it's our neurobiology, it's our it's how our physiology is responding in the present moment. It's our current level of coherence and stress and all of those things that you, that you talked about. And when it comes to um, emotional intelligence and self-awareness in particular, Harvard did a study that said 95% of people think they have self-awareness, but only 15% actually do. And so there's a huge gap in, and even I'll admit it myself, that until I spent time in this space and really understood what embodied self-awareness was, I lacked it for sure. I didn't even know. I didn't have a reference structure for what was going on or for my my reactions or my emotions. And most of us actually do a very poor job of identifying our emotions. Most of us don't have the language to really identify emotions, to really hone in on what emotion we're experiencing. And even when we do, we often mislabel it. And so one of the tools that we use and evolving to exceptional our programs is called Vibonics. And it's an app that uses voice frequency. So voice recognition technology that, that measures the frequencies in your voice, which frequencies correlate to the emotions we're experiencing. And then it tells you your level of emotional intelligence in that moment and the emotions that you're experiencing. And what's really powerful is I often thought of emotional intelligence as a destination, like you either have it or you don't. Yeah. But actually, emotional intelligence is if you want to denominal denominalize it, make it a thing, it's emotional intelligencing. It's something I am doing. And sometimes I'm better and sometimes I'm not. When I'm tired and I've just dealt with a sick child and my grandma passed away and I'm sick. I don't have a lot of emotional intelligence in those moments. My self-awareness is low. My empathy is low because of all those other factors. And so that's probably not a good time for me to give feedback or have a difficult conversation with an employee. So when we can measure that and understand what we're experiencing and then look at those emotions to say, am I angry or am I actually sad? 
am I sad or am I really just, or, or I have a lot of fear. I'm really afraid of what's going to happen in this situation. Then we start to be able to better process what we're experiencing and learn how to express them. But like you said, I think in most cases, this is not an area where leaders spend a lot of time developing. In fact, it's a core part of our neuro performance program. But as I've talked to other HR leaders, most programs don't have that component. They don't have that self-awareness piece. They teach leaders how to put budgets together and strategic thinking and financial acumen and all that stuff. That, but they don't have them go deeper internally in terms of their reactability. And when we lack that self-awareness, is a long way to get to, when we lack that self-awareness or when our leaders don't understand what's happening internally or their level of coherence, that's what creates a psychologically safe or unsafe environment. And because that is that happens on even a subconscious level, if a leader comes into an environment with their employees and they are out of coherence, they're in a reactive mode, they're highly stressed, all the things you talked about, they've got deadlines, they've got demands coming down, demands coming up, all those things, everybody around them feels that. Even if they say nothing about it, everyone around them can feel their level of coherence. And so that creates the environment, that creates the safety or the not safety and dramatically impacts the productivity and performance of everybody on the team. And so it becomes just really critically important. Yeah, it, it's everything you said. It's so true. And having a language to express it and to communicate it is so powerful. And understanding that it's human and that means it's all of us. It's a shared experience felt differently by every human, but still shared. And that permission to have that, having a language to work in that space is so vital, so helpful to the effectiveness of a leader. It's something that I have a unique privilege in that I have a, you know, great parents, great family came from that background. But one of the things that my dad used to teach me all the time, I would get frustrated playing baseball. I loved baseball. I was pretty good at it, I thought, but I would get frustrated. And that translated into other things, other sports, and so he would pull me aside and he would pause and he would say, the only person in your way is you. And you have to understand why you got in your way. And no one else, bad pitches come to everybody. You, somebody is going to get struck out on a regular basis. It's okay. You're in your own way. You being angry is not wrong. But if you go out there and you try to bat again, while you're this mad, your brain is not going to let your mechanics do what it needs to do. My dad's a fantastic coach. He was one of the greatest voices, still is to this day in my development in my life. But one of those lessons I learned as a junior hire sticks with me today as I'm working with leaders. It's a voice that I still have. And one of the other things he used to teach me and I still do use today is all of us have probably had those moments when we're driving and we've gotten upset or frustrated at someone who had no intention of frustrating and upsetting us. And so something when I was learning to drive different times, just being with him, he would say, the only person who's mad right now is you. 
<laughs> the only person frustrated is you. Why? And it took me working through that and having those conversations. And yeah, I've had a wonderful privilege in having someone that close to me who can see into my life and speak in those ways. But the ability to be able to converse for myself with myself. And so one of the things I think is super powerful for our leaders is to learn how to talk to themselves, not listen to themselves. And so we spend so much time listening to ourselves that we become paralyzed or it actually makes the problem more pronounced than it really is. Whereas if we talk to ourselves, we could be more effective. We could be more productive if we'd question ourselves. But that feels weird, right? It sounds a little woo, but it is actually very true. It's very effective. It goes back to emotional intelligence. Some 90% of high performers have high emotional intelligence. I believe it was Goldman who, in his research, proved that 127% or greater in your performance, if you can begin to have self-awareness and understand that. And so when we can really get a hold of the value of emotional intelligence, the ROI of creating psychological safety, it starts with you as a person, it starts with you as the leader, starts with you and your position. And just like you said so well, you're not going to hide it. You can be silent, but your body's gonna tell everybody how you're feeling. And being able to own that, being able to step forward and, and confidently say, here's where we are. I appreciate having leaders like that. And I want to always, because of my role, give leaders the opportunity to recognize you don't need anyone else's permission. You can go and do that for yourself. And it's a benefit to you and your team. And it carries outside of work, obviously. Yeah. And for those that want the science behind that, the our heart rates our heart rate variability is an indicator of our stress level of what our bodies are experiencing and it is it connects and determines whether our body is in a coherent state which is really our optimum our peak performing state we're able to flow at our best and perform at our best or if we're incoherent and we have poor heart rate variability then we're more likely to be stressed or in a dysregulated nervous system state and what happens is that our heart rate actually extends upwards of five feet outside of our body so that if we're in the same space as other people, the electromagnetic field that comes out from our heart, we actually entrain or can get into sync with the people that are close to us. And so if you walk into a meeting with a, a leader who is super stressed and running behind and has all, and they don't know how to regulate themselves, it can put everyone into that disrupted nervous system state and impact everyone's ability to really be performing and responding at their best. And so when we go through crisis communications and we go through really challenging situations that we have, if we're not aware of how to regulate before we make decisions, we can make really bad decisions and not even know it, not even know the state that we're in. And it's not what appears on the surface because we right. can appear really calm, like we have it all together. And your heart rate variability could be telling you you are in an extremely stressed state. And I know this because I track mine all day long. And there are times where 
my heart rate variability measure goes off and says, you're really stressed right now. And I don't even realize it. I don't recognize it. And I have to stop and do some breathing and bring my nervous system back to a balanced state because I'm, I'm not aware of it. So one final concept I want to get your thoughts on before we wrap up is a theory that I have around, uh, and, it, and it relates to the psychological safety, and it's around that because we all went through the pandemic, and going through the pandemic created such tremendous amounts of stress. We experienced stress at work. People were afraid of losing their jobs. They had to work differently. Everything changed. We had kids at home. Maybe you were doing homeschooling or, or maybe for the first time ever you were at home with your spouse all day. Those that had to work were facing the potential risks of being in the workplace or in hospitals or nurses or essential workers who then faced getting potentially sick. We didn't necessarily know the long-term consequences of COVID. All those things we all know caused right. so, so much stress in those years. It built up and we never really got a break from it. We had it almost consistently. And we know what happens with stress is over time, we experience a stressful event. And if we don't bring ourselves back down, it then builds up. We have another stressful event. We have another stressful event. And it keeps building up. And it's almost like it builds up like we're carrying these boulders of stress around with us because we haven't reset. We haven't brought ourselves back down. And so our bodies are carrying around all this extra stress that we're not really consciously aware of because we're, we're not thinking about bringing it back down to a baseline. So one of my theories is that because we went through that, that people haven't done the work to fully recover from that. So while we're our head brains, our, our heads are ready to move on. We're like, I'm good. I'm sick of the pandemic stuff. And right. oh, I just want to be in the future and be back to normal. Our bodies may not be reacting the same way. And so we may be more easily triggered into emotional states. We may more easily fall into those that out of coherence or dysregulated state or that high stress state in response to things that before might not have bothered us. But because our load is so high, it doesn't take as big of a trigger to, to put us into that state, which makes creating a psychologically safe environment a whole lot harder, right? Because before it didn't take as much to bring people back down. They didn't have, they had more of a capacity to deal with stressful things because they weren't carrying around all this stress already. What do you think about that? What are your thoughts on that? And have you seen that at all within your own organization? Oh, first of all, I think the theory is very well-founded. Certainly there is evidence I see within our organization as well as personal relationships not even related to work. Some of the language heard often is we're still recovering and still have ongoing post-traumatic stress that is taking place. And so I think you're very much on to something with that theory. I think it's a fantastic conversation. Uh, I would agree that there's a lot of value being had in talking about where we've not recovered to pre-pandemic levels in our own internal states. So as you've already mentioned in, in the conversation, talking about our head brain and our heart brain, and they are distinctly different. And so one may be fully ready to go in the conceptual space, that head brain, but that's not who we are wholly. That's not the entirety of our being. And so as a being, we're not ready to move. 
as something I'm not a professional therapist. I can't speak from some platform of authority, but the language I use often is your brain or your mind is ready, but your heart still has the residue from what previously occurred. And that residue can leave a stain. And so we need to do the work and have the time in order to really truly get the residue out and we don't store residue mentally we store it in our heart and that sounds again a little bit soft a little bit squishy i'm sure but it was wild and for the largest percentage of our workforce no one has encountered what we encountered during that time with the suddenness in which it occurred and so I've had the unfortunate reality of knowing those close to me that I love and care for who lost everything in a, a house fire. You don't go to bed at night thinking tomorrow it's all gone. That's not something that you would go to that person who, in his case, he's realizing he's having a conversation um, about photographs and some journals that he had from relatives. You wouldn't say to him, hey, get over it. That was five years ago. Because in that statement alone, first, you expose that you do not have the emotional intelligence that you have said that you do have. And second, you're not giving him the opportunity to be safe in the conversation. It's very real. He lost something very tangible, very valuable, and we all collectively lost something we all collectively endured a broken illusion that we thought was incredibly safe on a global scale and it in many ways happened overnight and so i believe the theory is solid i believe that the approach is first and foremost kindness and consideration and i think as leaders as practitioners in our space of hr in my space of leadership, talent development, it's recognizing that the function of work does demand that head brain be ready to go. But the effectiveness of our leaders and teams requires the whole person to be ready to go. And so where does that show up in the world of work most immediately? In my experience, it's timeline. So we can put a project together, we can put something to a place of launch and we're ready to go. And cognitively, we've checked the boxes. But when we bring that to the team and we ask the team to initiate, engage and move forward, are their whole persons ready? Because there is a new, fully entrenched, maybe residual thing inside of them that has not reached a place of confidence yet. We do, if we can remember, this is the people, they're sharing the same thing. We're all humans. We all have the same human being essence that is out there. If we can start at the human level and work from there, the cognitive level, the practical level, those things usually take care of themselves. And so, that would be probably more words to respond to that than necessary, but I think it's a fantastic piece that needs more conversation and more thought around how do we welcome, how do we nurture, 
and how as businesses and organizations in the global economy do we bring our teams to a place and us as individuals to a place where we can say this happened but we've done the work we're going to let you do the work we're going to do this collectively and together and we're going to get the residue out before it stains because once that sets creates a whole nether layer of challenge so let's not rush with such unnecessary need towards something until we know that we're ready and let's expect hope is a big word for me hope is something that is a value of mine but go there with everything but something that i love about hope is that it is always believing the best of the future and so we all if given the opportunity have a reason to hope and hope is a voice that won't lie to you and if we as leaders, as those in places of HR, in operations, in finance, it really doesn't matter your role title and function, you're a human. If you can remember as a human that we have hope that our organization, that our customers, the organizations we interact with, the relationships we enjoy, we're all collectively in this because that's what the pandemic taught us as well we're all collectively engaged. And so if we can actually work from that perspective, giving space, providing opportunity and allowing for, as I like to say, cliche it may be, but allowing hope to heal and work and allow recovery of the heart to happen, the measurable objectives and outcomes will be exponentially greater and the ROI over that short period of time that realistically is needed will be so large. Does it look great on a spreadsheet? Maybe not. Is it hard to actualize? Maybe. Is the value of the effort clearly present? I would say 100%. I, I love so much of what you just said there. And I'm going to give you a second to give a, 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 a final thought in a minute before we, we wrap up. But I want to hit on especially your, your comment there of our heads may be ready, but if our bodies aren't, it's going to hinder us. It's going to hinder our effectiveness and our ability to really get the work done that we want to get done. And so if we're seeing this, if we're seeing that there's still this recovery that needs to come into play, then getting back to the humanness, as you said, getting back to who we are as humans and understanding how our neurobiology and neurophysiology works, how we operate so that we can change the practices and do the work necessary to bring ourselves back to a balanced state, to evolve through this challenging experience that we had and come out the other side stronger, more resilient, more prepared, more emotionally intelligent, more aware of how to utilize our resources and all of our wisdom that exists within ourselves, we're going to actually come out so much stronger. And so the organizations that are out there that are willing to take that leap and to really work with not just their leaders, certainly their leaders, but not just their leaders, but potentially all everyone within their organization to do that work, to understand the impacts of the stress experience that we've had and how to mitigate and bring people back into a balanced state and create psychologically safe environments where people are not triggered 
by their interactions and their communications and how they're working with one another is going to have huge impacts. And the organizations that choose to lean into that and do that proactively, I think will substantially outperform any of their competitors in the similar space or even in, in different spaces. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there and the information that we need on how to do that already exists. It's not as yes. though it's a problem we don't know how to solve. We actually know how to solve it. It just requires the the investment and not huge time investment, but just a, a, an incremental investment in the practices that'll create the results that we want to see and help leaders and employees know how to do that effectively. So Caleb, thank you so much. This has been awesome. I think we could go on and on probably all day. For sure. <laughs> so any final thoughts for our audience before we wrap this up? I would just say to the leader in the middle, the hardest place out there, so many of us live there. Remember, you matter. Your influence is bigger than you realize. You're living, you're loved. Let hope be a strategy. Uh, I've said it already, but doesn't matter how squeezed you might feel in the middle. You have a greater influence than you realize. So go live big, have the impact that you know you can have. And uh, don't be in your own way to share some of my dad's advice. And and I have to say, I really loved your your dad's advice. And I think the more people that understand or appreciate that, understand how we show up matters, uh, how we feel and how we experience our lives really matters to what happens in them, to what the results are of our efforts, that by living and embodying that, it not only impacts us in our workplaces, but it impacts our families and especially our children who now today are having probably the most difficult time. The statistics are, are scary for those of us that are parents as yes. to the rates of depression and challenges and the things that our kids are experiencing. And so if for no other reason, I think our leaders need to jump in and our people need to jump in as, as we focus on our own development, it's for our kids to really do the work ourselves so that we can guide and nurture them to better understand how to live and evolve in the world that we live in. As we wrap up this episode, as I always say at the end of every episode, I want to remind our listeners to just always keep evolving, always keep growing, always keep looking for those opportunities to rewire your neural pathways in ways that can create more exceptional life experiences for you on your performance journey. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy the opportunities. Enjoy the experience. You only get to live one life. You might as well live an exceptional one. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day and we'll be back again next week with another episode. 